3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respects to Elders, past and present, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement, and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. How are y'all doing today? Yeah, welcome uh, to the breakfast show, everyone. Uh, Got Claudia here. Grace. Grace. And... Patrick, yes. Hello. Good morning. All is well. (laughs) It is uh, post-budget morning, so um, yeah, lots to unpack Mm -hmm. today. Uh, I know that uh, we've got a couple of speakers coming on the show to talk about the budget. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a a moderate budget, wasn't it? There was nothing huge there for anyone, really. Perhaps aged care workers, um, Mm -hmm. I think, got the biggest boost. Um, Yeah, we'll be hearing from the Anti-Poverty Centre later. Obviously, a disappointing result there. Um, Yeah, we'll be unpacking that. Mm, Yeah, definitely. And then we also be going in a bit more international. It's about politics and tax as well, but at least it, um, but I mean, it's not about the budget, but it's about tax. And I think it's a good segue to go into a bit of something else that's happening around the world as well. Exactly. Awesome. And also delving into public housing as well. So there's everything on today uh, for you listeners. Mm. So make sure to stick with us all morning. Yeah, so we'll be starting off with the international uh, piece and then uh, middle of the show from about 7.30 through till 8 o'clock we'll be focusing on the budget and uh, then wrapping up with the uh, public housing Issue. It's more than an issue. Yeah, it's it's a big issue, Claudia. In terms of uh, in terms of what's going on. So Barack Beacon uh, in Port Melbourne. Uh, there's going to be a rally on tomorrow. I'll give you more details uh, when we get to the segment. But looking forward to that chat as well. Mm, definitely. So overall, with other segments that's all going on today, um, our f- very first will be in, in giving an international insight to uh, something regarding text. So Naomi Fowler from Tax Justice Network uh, spoke to Alex Cobin and Rachel Atta-Foyer about how important uh, tax policy is in stopping the continuation of empire and patterns of extraction that impoverish communities and harm children. So yeah, we'll be looking at that and how they look at the recent reports of this. And then after that, Patrick will be speaking with the host of CR Economic Show, MMT, Gavin, Kevin Gaynor discussing all the things federal budget and what impacts it has on our economy, but also what does politics mean for you listeners. And then we'll be hearing from MT Poverty Centre spokesperson Christine O'Connell, who Claudia will be speaking to in response to the budget and her reflections on the campaign run to address any poverty and amid the cost of living crisis. 
And lastly, uh, Patrick again will be speaking, uh, spoke to the host of the Tree CR program, Raise the Roof, about the Bark Beacon Housing Estate based in Port Melbourne, where over 250 people were forced to relocate as the state government decided to redevelop through the big housing built project. So yeah, that's all. That's all. Everything that we're going through today, very budget focused for the for this week. Yeah. So should we run into headlines before we get uh, into our uh, content this morning, Patrick? Uh, can you start us off? Yeah. So for your Wednesday, uh, the Guardian has reported that a thousand thousands of residents who were forced into sudden COVID nineteen lockdowns uh, during the public uh, when the public housing towers in Melbourne in twenty twenty will be eligible for five million dollars in compensation. The Victorian government has settled a class action over the measures intended to stop an outbreak of the virus in nine towers at the height of the second wave. The plaintiffs claim people were wrongly detained for up to 14 days and threatened with physical harm if they tried to leave the towers through the state of Victoria, uh, though the state of Victoria deny those claims. The settlement still needs to be improved in, approved in the Supreme Court, but under the agreement, affected adults who opt into the scheme would receive equal shares and children would receive half of that. A spokesperson for the Victorian government said it worked with the public health experts on a response to COVID that protected lives and livelihoods. That's amazing. And then for me, as I'm going a bit to a more international context uh, for my part, one of America's biggest writer labor unions, Writers Guild of America, and other media companies are actually currently going on their 100-day Hollywood writer strike due to a failed reach of agreement of contract with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, uh, known as AMPTP. The writers are calling for more compensation, like standardizing the compensation for screenwriting, including the increase of studio contribution to the pension plan and health funds. This comes following the rise of streaming services, yet they still get low pays. Members of the Guild have said the AMPTP has rejected many proposals, including setting a minimum number of staff writers for a show. This is considered to be one of the biggest threats to the Hollywood scene ever at the moment, because uh, big talk TV, big TV talk shows like The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and NBC's Saturday Night Live uh, was forced to cancel for three Mays of three May episodes for this month. Now, turning to the budget, we spoke with Jenny Davidson from the Council of Single Mothers and Their Children last week, so I wanted to give an update on the outcome there for the budget. The government has announced it will raise the cut-off age for the parenting payment single allowance from 8 to 14. So that means that single parents will not have to transfer to the lower job seeker payment when their youngest child turns 8. Uh, the eight-year-old cut-off uh, was introduced by the Howard government in 2006 and further entrenched by Julia Gillard in 2012. But while the rise in the cut-off age to 14 was welcomed by single-parent advocacy groups, the campaign for increased support will continue. Chief Executive of the National Council of Single Mothers and Their Children, Therese Edwards, said... Whilst ecstatic that a parenting payment is no longer denied when a child celebrates their eighth birthday, we will continue to press and make a case for full reinstatement, which would mean access until 16 years. Therese Edwards was part of the Women's Economic Equality Task Force, which recommended that the parenting payment single be restored. 
And of course, uh, once the child uh, does reach 14, the parent will uh, be forced onto job seeker payment, which we will be hearing uh, has hardly shifted with the budget. So, um, yeah, there's still a, a, a lot of child raising years there that aren't uh, protected under these changes. Okay, I think we're going to head into our show, but before that, we've got a song. Yeah, we do. We've got a song. Um, this is called I Can't Stand the Rain by Chris Wilson. I can't stand the rain Against my window Bringing back sweet memories Oh, 
and that and that was uh, I Can't Stand the Rain by Chris Wilson it's a bit of a very upbeat song for an early morning but hope that has all wake you up so now we're going into a international context of a bit regarding a tax policy uh, in this is actually in sub-Saharan Africa so basically Naomi Fowler from Tax Justice Network spoke with Alex Coben and Rachel Atafoya about how important tax policy is in stopping the continuation of empire and patterns of extraction that impoverish communities and harm children. They looked at a recent report called How Can Impoverish Sorry, How Can Corporate Tax Contribute to the Sub-Saharan Africa's Sustainable Development Goals? which uh, looked at the Vodafone company as a case study. This is Naomi Fowler reporting. Each year, a company like this meets with its board and its shareholders. They publish a glossy brochure on how well things are going, and they take a few votes. But the accounts section of their glossy brochures may well be incomplete. And that's because for a long time, many of these companies have been able to bundle up all their accounts from each country where they do business into one final convenient figure. That means they didn't have to tell us their profits based on the business they were doing in each country, making it very challenging for tax authorities in those countries. Add to the mix that they were often using a tax haven or two and shifting things all over the place to minimise their taxes still further. Well, the Tax Justice Network fought the good fight, arguing that multinationals should publicly report on their activities country by country. For years we were told that it was an impossible dream, that it would never happen. Then the EU kicked off public country-by-country reporting for banks many years ago, and then they implemented a watered-down country-by-country reporting version for multinationals headquartered in some jurisdictions. Under pressure, the OECD introduced its own version of country-by-country reporting for the largest multinationals in all industry sectors, but the data's private and only easily accessible for OECD members. The EU has now required that this information is published by reporting multinationals operating in their jurisdiction, but only for EU countries and a few others. You can see that bit by bit it is getting harder for multinationals to hide from paying fair taxes in the places they're actually doing business. But there's still a long way to go. Here's Alex Cobham of the Tax Justice Network. So as of today, more than 90 countries or jurisdictions have implemented country-by-country reporting for private data under the OECD standard. Now, because that data is not public and is only exchanged privately between tax authorities, The OECD reckons that there are more than 3,300 bilateral exchange of information arrangements for country-by-country reporting in place. But of those 93, uh, I think it is, jurisdictions who are participating in information exchange, only nine of them are African, only two of them are least developed countries, only 28 are middle-income countries. 
So this is overwhelmingly favouring OECD members getting access and much less so the rest of the world. So, for example, African countries are really the headquarter countries for the world's largest multinationals, right? That's why what the most powerful nations do about this is so important. And obviously there are historical reasons why, for example, African countries are so disadvantaged when it comes to getting access to country-by-country reporting by multinationals. There's a history of disempowerment of those nations that's a continuation of empire and patterns of extraction. Here's Rachel Etapoya of the Tax Justice Network. It's interesting looking at the history because public country-by-country reporting or just getting companies to disclose tax information is not something new. Um, Already in like the 1960s and 70s, African and Asian nations supporting the UN uh, resolution on the new international economic order were trying to gain sovereignty because they realized that even though they decolonized, the, the global economy was, was in the hands of the richest nations and in the hands of former imperial powers. And one of the ways this is done is through corporate power. Many of the multinationals that are operating in these countries then and still today are headquartered in the richest nations in the world. And those efforts of African and Asian nations through the UN was really undermined and and the, the Club of the Rich, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, really took the reins to try and maintain their control over designing tax rules and designing and deciding on what information gets shared or not. So although when the Tax Justice Network two decades ago started to raise the, the call again for having for the first time public country by country reporting corporate transparency in tax matters the oecd said it was impossible and not going to happen and now today we do see progress so the oecd now publishes some data that some companies and countries are providing to the oecd about where they are paying their taxes and profits but this is all anonymized it's not including all companies it's not including all countries and this information is only available to tax authorities that are part of the global network for exchanging information and majority of african countries are not part of this not because they don't want to be, but because the way to get to join and the, the rules to be able to join are set by the OECD. And there's some hurdles that are just not possible at this stage for African countries to jump through, particularly because they are former colonized states. And it was the way that the colonies worked and they were um, plundered and they weren't able to at those times and are on the back foot when setting up systems. And so it means that there's just not the right access to information, even though African and Asian nations have been calling for this and Latin American countries as well. And so many of the OECD rich country club member states are made up of not only the worst global offenders for draining tax revenue from other countries, but a lot of them are former colonisers. And before we get to the fascinating results, looking at the data from Vodafone publishing its accounts country by country in six African nations, which we now know changed people's lives. What can national governments do faced with multinationals taking advantage of rules that don't force public reporting country by country? Here's Alex Cobham again. If a multinational refuses to provide its its country by country reporting data privately to its home country tax authority, or more likely if that home jurisdiction refuses to ask for the data in order to exchange it with others, then other countries are actually able in those circumstances to say to the multinational, 
you're operating in our country and so you need to give us the information directly. Um, this is what's called local filing of country-by-country country reporting data. But that local filing is extremely rare. And in practice, the local subsidiary of the multinational is able to say, oh, no, we don't have that information. The parent of the group has that data, but they don't give it to us. And so we can't give it to you. So, you know, again, it's just one of the ways in which this weakening of the OECD approach, moving away from public data, has ended up uh, recreating these kind of power inequalities where the multinationals able to say no, it often will do. Charming. The realities of power, eh? How likely are some of the world's less politically and economically powerful governments to push multinationals? A country that's weaker still has the power to demand local filing. And indeed, you could demand local filing across the board rather than rely on information exchange. But you need, in a sense, the political support. In most cases, you know, this is a filing requirement, so you only have relatively small fines in place if companies don't comply. Again, you could say this is a condition of operating in our economy. If you want to make money here, you have to give us this basic uh, transparency. But that would take significant commitment from the government. Of course, you know, increasingly as this data is published by companies like Vodafone uh, voluntarily, but also companies that are uh, reporting under the Global Reporting Initiative standard, which is a, a much more technically robust standard than the OECD one. Countries can go, uh, tax authorities can go and get that data themselves. Most excitingly, Australia has just published draft legislation that would require all multinationals over the size threshold operating in Australia to publish their country-by-country reporting data. And that would give a whole set of other countries around the world access to that data directly. So we're on the road here. We're going to see more and more of this data being made public one way and another, both voluntarily and by mandate in different places. If the OECD was at all forward-thinking, they'd say, look, we need to get ahead of this. We need to finally respond to the public consultation that we did in 2020, to which the OECD has never published any uh, response. What that showed overwhelmingly was that civil society and investors with trillions of dollars of assets under management were calling for the OECD simply to converge to the Global Reporting Initiative standard, which is much better, and to make the data public. That's where this goes. You know, even the big four accounting firms are starting to recognise that that's the uh, the end game. And it's a question of, you know, whether they can drag their heels for another couple of years or accept it and get it ahead now. So countries at all income levels will have access to this data soon enough. And the entire OECD architecture, both the relatively weak OECD standard and this ridiculous mechanism for information exchange will become obsolete fairly quickly. In the meantime, though, we're losing time, we're losing tax revenues, we're losing, as the Vodafone report shows, with those tax revenues, we're losing the lives of children, of mothers, we're losing public health and all sorts of public spending around the world. This is an urgent matter, and we really should just move straight to public reporting whichever way we can do it, wherever we are, as soon as possible. 
And that was Naomi Fowler from Tax Justice Network speaking with Alex Corbin and Rachel Adafoya about how important tax policy is in stopping the continuation of empire and patterns of extraction that impoverish communities and harm children. That And at the end was Alex Corbin from Tax Justice Network as well, ending that report. The report was titled, How Can Corporate Taxes Contribute to the Sub-Saharan Africa Sustainable Development Goals? So this was the importance of public reporting into stopping tax avoidance by corporations. You can catch the full report at Tax Justice Network. Now we're heading into a song. This is called Ruling Class Blues by the Rainbow Snakes.
And that was the ruling class blues by the Rainbow Snakes. We're going to go to our budget discussion uh, just in a moment, but I just wanted to jump in with uh, some breaking news this morning. Uh, the New York jury has decided that former US President Donald Trump sexually abused and defamed the writer E. Jean Carroll. It did not find that he raped her. Um, his, uh, the verdict has awarded her a $5 million in US dollars uh, damages. Of course, Trump has called the verdict a disgrace. No doubt we'll hear a lot more about that um, later in the day. But uh, now we're going to head to our budget yes. stories. <laughs> yes, we are, Claudia, after that big news um, coming out of the US. And it's going to be more fascinating. But I am now joined, talking all things budget, uh, by Modern, Mo- Modern Monetary Theory uh, host, uh, Kevin Gaynor. Kevin, welcome. Patrick, how are you doing? Very good, very good, Kevin. So, Kevin, firstly, give me an idea about this budget. And there's been a surplus. Is that a good thing? Okay, so the budget. The the Labor Party is focusing on, has a very different focus than what the coalition would have had uh, had they brought down a budget. The coalition's always focused on business, so you would have had a, bu- a budget about small business and big business and incentives, and it would have been through that lens. And so Labor has addressed some glaringly obvious problems uh, in our economy, uh, and he's focusing on uh, those who need need help you know we've, we've got uh, the unemployment benefits have been substandard for years uh, rent is is out of control there's a lot of people who need help and so labor has made moves towards recognizing these problems that exist uh, the surplus so but there's a couple of things we need to understand I, I would call it a budget that tinkers at the edges um, and that labor is hamstrung by that they're cap- they're captured by neoliberal ideology. Uh, neoliberal ideology has been in force for the last forty years, and a lot of the narrative goes towards supporting this this ideology, uh, and it really constrains what they can say and do uh, if they want to stay in power. So I understand it, but they need to start changing the narrative. Is a surplus good or bad? I'm going to give you a real basic <laughs> understanding of economics here. A government surplus is a private sector deficit. Okay, the government spends into the economy. Whenever the government spends, whether it's uh, welfare payments, infrastructure projects, etc., you have government money being created and injected into the private sector. So as soon as they pay a contractor, as soon as they pay a benefit, that money then goes into people's pockets and they can spend it. Okay, so a government deficit means that there is money that the government has spent and has been left in the private sector. A government surplus means that the government is pulling money out of the private sector and shrinking the private sector. So surpluses are a really dumb idea, okay? (laughs) And deficits are necessary. And if you have a look at the history of Australia and every other economy, they run deficit after deficit after deficit because that's what supports the private sector. If government deficits didn't exist, the private sector would collapse. So we have a, a, a government debt which has accumulated over the years, which is near a trillion dollars. And the simple proof of this is that if the government then went into the private sector and said, right, private sector, you owe us a trillion dollars, pay it back, the private sector would collapse. That's the proof of the pudding, okay? The private sector depends on government deficits to exist. So government deficits are a good thing. And surpluses aren't such a good thing. You'd only introduce a surplus if your economy was overheated. Now, the good thing about this surplus is that it comes from uh, from resources. So it's coming from 
rich companies. So I've got no problems with taxing the rich because one of the big problems we have in our economy is inequality. So this this surplus, it's it's sucking money out of the rich to a degree, but they're still rich, okay? <laughs> and, and there has been a minor distribution to those who need it. But there needs to be a lot more done because all these measures that they're taking with rent assistance and upping uh, New Start, et cetera, they're barely keeping up. Well, they're not even keeping up with inflation. So that so people in desperate situations are still desperate, um, and all they've done is stop them from being going into hopelessness. So it's barely keeping up. Yeah, it is, Kevin, and that's very fascinating in terms of the surplus and what you said there in terms of what could happen uh, in the running down the future. $15 billion have been given to cost of living relief, including power pill rebates. Um, also, I think they're doing $262.6 million over four years for the National Anti-Corruption Commission and a few other things in there as well. What What's something that you look look at in terms of what could be better uh, managed in the future? Well, well let's just have a look at, um, uh, jo- they call it, what they call it Job Seeker. Now it used to be New Start and now it's Job Seeker. So what happened during the pandemic was overnight the coalition doubled uh, New Start and called it um, Job Seeker, and it brought people who are on unemployment benefits from half the poverty level up to the poverty level. Okay, uh, and they did that overnight. So we know that th- th- this can be done. Now, what was the effect on on the uh, on the economy by doing that? Well, I don't, I don't, nothing's nothing's fallen <laughs> down. We're, we're still here. Uh, all that happened was that people who were living on half the poverty line were, were raised to the poverty line, and they could actually get a new tyre for their car, get a, get their fridge fixed or repaired or, or a couch, etc. get a new couch. So all all that does, all that happens is when you help people who are struggling, you help the economy because they can then invest, well, they can buy stuff. And if they're buying stuff, that's good for small business. So uh, what I keep on hearing, and, and I hear this, if I hear one more commentator say this, the, the level the level of ignorance with uh, economic uh, commentators and and politicians is astounding. Uh, they know that uh, that government spending supports the private sector, and I keep on hearing this thing saying, "Oh, if you spend into the economy, you're going to uh, exasperate inflation." You know, if you help <laughs> if you help the poor, you're going to exasperate inflation. Uh, it, it, and what they're saying there is if you give people too much discretionary spending, they're going to spend it. So so if you give uh, an aged uh, an aged nurse care, an aged, what do you have, aged care, <laughs> aged care, care nurse, nurse, yes. if you give them an extra uh, you know, 15% pay rise, what what they're saying is, oh, now that I've got a 15% pay rise, when I go to the supermarket, I'm going to pay $5 for my milk, not three fifty, because I've got some extra money in my pocket. That's a ludicrous, a ludicrous assumption. What they're saying is if you've got extra money in your pocket, you're going to push prices up. The prices have gone up not because people have got extra money in their pocket. Prices have gone up because there's a bloody war in Ukraine, because oil prices are out of control, because... Uh, gas companies are, are exploiting the system. Uh, that's got nothing to do with uh, with a, an aged care nurse having more money in their pocket or, or somebody on Newstart having extra dollars. So, so the whole assumption that by spending into the economy you're going to exasperate inflation, by helping the poor you're going to exasperate inflation, is ludicrous. If you really thought that discretionary spending was uh, fueling inflation, as it does at the top end of town, because all these people who are buying investment properties are people who have ex- extra money in their pockets, and so they're pushing people who want to be homeowners out of the market. If you really thought that uh, having extra discretionary spending was inflationary, you would tax the rich. You would get rid of their extra money, and that would solve the problem. But as soon as you, as soon as they say, oh, we're going to help people on unemployment benefits, or we're going to help people on the bottom, bottom level, we're going to help them out, they start screaming inflationary. It's rubbish. 
Yeah, that's that's very true. I, Adam Bant just said that it was a low. Uh, they wouldn't be able to afford a loaf of bread. Apparently, the argument is over JobKeeper, um, yeah. even though it's increased by $40. Now, I, I was quite impressed uh, listening to Adam Bant. Uh, he's impressing me more and more. Now, I reckon Adam Bant understands uh, how the system works. The, the problem that he's got and the problem that Labor's got is that if you start talking progressive economics like me or like anybody in the MMT movement, you're going to be called out as, as some sort of crazy lefty loony uh, <laughs> and you're going to be uh, shot down in flames, even though everything that we say is backed up 100% by facts and figures. Nothing we say, it's called modern monetary theory. Uh, gravity is a theory, okay? All we're doing is explaining the system how it works. So, so we understand inflationary pressures. We understand uh, how the private sector depends on government deficits to stay uh, in operation. Uh, and with that understanding, it's, it makes perfect sense. But if anybody else starts speaking it in a position of power, because the orthodoxy is so entrenched, because the, the, uh, the economic commentators have been carrying on about this, uh, their neoliberal ideology for so long... Uh, any, anybody that speaks any differently is going to get shot down in flames. So Adam Bantz, uh, he's, doing a, he's in a better position to, do, uh, to take a harder line than Labor. Uh, Labor really needs to be careful of this uh, narrative on surpluses. They need to drop that talk because it's, it's just bullshit. Um, but uh, Bantz doing a pretty good job at pushing the issue without opening himself up to that kind of uh, that ridicule from from the orthodox commentators. Yeah, and that's something that can possibly happen, you know, the moment you say oh we need to, you know, as you were, as you were alluding to, the moment you have to say you've got to increase uh, payments for welfare payments or something, people kind of get all paranoid by the fact that uh, you know that's going to cause high inflation, as you were saying, Kevin. But it's, also, it's just, it's just but not. Also, but also, as I was going to say, would that your theory would that be an option that the government should be looking forward for the future? I'm just thinking because I think neoliberalism and globalization is coming to a point of standstill. We saw with the pandemic what the impacts were of that was, and also the war in Ukraine with you know the stopping of gas, you know the holding on exports of gas and oil, and also um, the impact of wheat. Do you think there's a future where that your theory? Could could be a successful one. Look, we know that people inside the Greens and Labor Party uh, understand and subscribe to uh, the way that we view the economy. Um, uh, we've spoken to people uh, in the party uh, here on this show, um, uh, on our show, a little while ago. Uh, I spoke to Jed Carney; she knows a little. It's known, but it's still seen as an outlier way. It it it, it confronts it 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 contests the orthodoxy. Uh, if you want to hear a good mainstream uh, commentator on this, listen to Alan Kohler. Uh, he's on board, um, but uh, he's very careful about how he speaks because he's a mainstream commentator. Um, but but yes, of course, it's not as if, as if they need to know. I think large parts of the political system do know how the how the economy actually works. You, you couldn't work. You listen to um, to Philip Lowe, the, um, the governor of the Reserve Bank. He he openly states he says inflation is caused to external uh, pressures, um, so we're going to put up interest rates to try because we think that by slugging first home, home homeowners with with higher mortgages will will bring down gas prices. He contradicts himself when he says this, but but he, he never makes that connection. He just says uh, inflation is caused by external problems, but we'll put up interest rates and that'll solve the problem because that's the only tool he's got. The solutions to these problems can't come from the Reserve Bank putting interest rates up and down. They have to come from fiscal intervention by the by the federal government. That's where the, the solution lies. They have the ability to mobilise resources. They control uh, uh, the public purse. Uh, 
it's their responsibility to solve these problems and they can't be palmed off to the RBA. So people in government and the Reserve Bank know this. They're just not allowed to say it. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of the RBA, you know, I think people get lost when it comes to the increase of interest rates. We see the headlines is when we have the first uh, month uh, on the Tuesday, um, you know, when it comes to the, when it comes to the interest rates rises, it's always been that big headline, oh, there's a hike in interest rates, but no one explains. You have to wait five minutes for someone to actually explain what the real reason behind them increasing the interest rate and also... Let's, let's just have a, qu- a quick look at this. And we talk about this on our show. And, and uh, if you want some more background on this, Radio MMT, we, we run podcasts and, and a lot of this will be explained in those podcasts. Let's just have a look at uh, raising interest rates. You raise interest rates to try and uh, supposedly take discretionary spending away from people to um, to stop inflation from happening. Well, that's just nonsense. You put up interest rates, first home buyers have to uh, spend more on their mortgage. So uh, that money flows through to the banks. Uh, they, uh, they're under pressure. Chances are they may have to sell their property. Uh, if you're an in- in- investor... Um, and your interest rate goes up, you simply pass that on to your renter. Um, so so rents go up, which is inflationary. Okay, So pushing interest rates up is inflationary because investor uh, uh, owner, well, investor, property investor, investors, what do you call it? What's the word? Landlords. Landlords, yes. Will pass that on to their, onto their uh, tenants, which is inflationary. And then you have um, uh, the budget come in where they offer uh, rental assistance uh, and you have the same commentators saying that, oh, well, rental assistance, that's the government spending money, that's going to be inflationary. The reason they're doing that is to fight the inflation caused by the dumbass buddy operations <laughs> of the Reserve Bank in the first place. It's 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 ludicrous. So much of the system is ludicrous and back to front. It, I, it, yeah, yeah. I can I can see why you're you're pumped up, Kevin, about it in terms of what should be done in the future in terms of you know economic policy in this country. Uh, you know, what's your hoping for the future in terms of future budgets, and where can we see? You know, there's always this argument of oh, I don't get the money that I get because you know I, I'm not a part of that certain criteria that they've got for the budget. Do you think that the middle class Australian um, should uh, should think about where the, well not where the economic spending should go, but also should they um, probably think about you know one bit of the budget will help them in some way. Look, there's one thing which I've been pushing for quite some time, which nobody talks about: raise the tax-free threshold, raise it to fifty thousand dollars, raise it to seventy-five thousand dollars. That will help anybody on a low income get by. Uh, anybody who's on, on a five-figure income is disproportionately hit by uh, income tax. Uh, and uh, anybody who's, uh, and they're talking about bringing in these stage three tax cuts. Well, that's that that will be inflationary. That ticks all the wrong boxes. It's inflationary. It um, broadens inequality, etc. Just raise the tax-free threshold to $50,000, $75,000. That means anybody who's on a low income will, will have extra spending to help them get by. It will even things out. That tax-free threshold flows through to the people on high incomes as well, so everybody gets a benefit. That, to me, would be a, a good policy, but that's just my little personal um, uh, barrow that I'm pushing there. I've been pushing that one for a while. <laughs> um, but, look, the, the way things are running with, uh, with the environment, with inequality, with, uh, with poverty, etc., we're headed towards a car crash, and so it's just a question of whether any political party has the nous to do what they can to avoid the, the the wall the brick walls as it comes flying towards us at 60 mile an hour i mean it's it's that's and that requires some bravery so labor needs to step up they need to 
uh, I understand their position. If they if they seem to be too radical, they'll be booted out. But they need to change the narrative while they can. They're in a position to do it, and the Greens need to nudge them along. We need to make the coalition irrelevant. They're doing a pretty good job of that by themselves. But uh, <laughs> but no, yes. but we everything is happening too slow. All this tinkering at the edges is not going to avoid one nasty crash. There needs to be more dramatic, more dynamic change. Yes, yes, definitely do, Kevin. And I think it'll be fascinating in the coming months ahead what will be made of this budget and where the funding goes. We've seen in the future, we've seen in the past, uh, past budgets when it comes to funding projects, you know, th- they didn't get spent on there. What happened to that project that was built um, in the Murray-Darling Basin, for example, Kevin? There's a lot of, a lot of aspects there. But also, Kevin, where can we find your show? And uh, as you made mention it uh, through our chat. Well, uh, I'll tell you about Michonne, but I do want to mention this. Like, like anybody can figure out whether the uh, any budget measure is any good or not um, by three three criteria: is it inflationary? Does it help inequality? And does it harm the environment? Now, the, the government is well resourced to to bring in any policy that it wants. If it if those three three criteria works fine, you find us on Radio MMT. We're on a Friday every second Friday, the second and fourth Friday of the month uh, between five thirty and six thirty p.m. on 3CR, and you can find our podcast at uh, through Spotify or Apple or you know wherever you find your podcast, etc. So that's Radio MMT. Um, have a listen to the podcast. We've just rebranded the show a little while ago, uh, and it's um it's pretty neat. Anne does a fantastic job in doing most of the research, and I get to mouth off every now and again. <laughs> I love it. I love it, Kevin. I love it. Thanks very much for coming on. It was a great chat. Thank about you. The budget. Thanks. Cheers. And that was Kevin Gaynor here on 855 AM 3CR. Um, We are now going to go to Claudia. Yes, we'll be speaking with Kristen O'Connell just in a moment and uh, we'll be following up on uh, the poverty side of the budget. But first, we're going to have a break with a song. Yep, and so this song is called Future Children, the Bailoni Holy. It will happen soon. So then we realize future children, future children cannot access. Cannot access no signal, cannot respond, no signal, signal loss, power failure, no power no solar panel no winners and a billion dollar lottery no winners and a billion dollar lottery Billion dollar lottery. Win, 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 win. We have a winner. We have a winner. 
Join the National Day of Action on May 13th to mark 75 years since the Nakba, also known as the Catastrophe, when 80% of the Palestinian people were ethnically cleansed from their homeland and over 530 Palestinian villages destroyed to create the State of Israel. Today, Palestinians on a daily basis are still resisting the loss of their homeland and human rights, insisting on their right of return and sharing their truth. Join them in their fight for justice and a free Palestine at 1 p.m. Saturday, May 13th at the State Library. That's 1 p.m. Saturday, 13th of May. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And the song that you were listening to before, that was called Future Children by Loni Holly. Now I'll be passing on to Claudia. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast and before the break, we heard Kevin Gaynor from uh, 3CR's economic show discussing the federal budget and the impact it has on our economy. We're now going to go to uh, a specific area of the budget and a very important one. We're going to speak now to Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre. Now, Kristen's been campaigning for Australians living in poverty, not just in the lead up to the budget, but every day of the year. We're going to speak to her from Canberra and hear her response to the budget announcement last night. Good morning, Kristen. Hi, Claudia. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, what have the last few days been like for you? Um, I would say being in Canberra quite literally makes me feel physically ill because it is the centre of power where the people who are um, making decisions to cause so much harm, I mean, in so many areas, but of course, um, ex- extreme harm through the social security system. So I always find it very bleak and depleting. Um, though I did get to go to this uh, protest yesterday for the National Union of Students, which was wonderful. So, yeah, it's a difficult time. It's been very busy um, and a lot of theatre and not a lot of meaningful action to support people who need it. Yeah, so uh, we're going to unpack the different announcements shortly with you. But first, uh, what's your overall reaction to what's been delivered? Um, I wasn't surprised with anything we heard. Um, I know many people were because many people did believe Anthony Albanese when he said no one left behind. Um, But my initial reaction is we cannot continue to have politicians making decisions about how much income support people need and get because it's very clear now for more than three decades that they will play political games with our lives but not to have any consideration for what we actually need to survive. 
Yeah, I hear that. And we'll, we'll come to uh, your uh, call for an independent commission um, later in the, the chat. So let's first uh, unpack JobSeeker, a $20 increase to the base rate per week, which is uh, $2.85 a day for under 55s. I wanted to go to the Interim Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee's report that the federal government set up this committee. Uh, the report calls for a substantial increase in the base rates of job seeker payment and related working age payments as a first priority. Can $20 per week be considered substantial by any interpretation of that word? And will it take job seeker recipients out of poverty? Well, for context, the Henderson poverty line is $611 a week and the job seeker payment is currently $346 a week. So it's $250 below the poverty line. So we're not even getting 10% closer to the poverty line, which for, for many people um, is not just disheartening because this figure is so low, it's also distressing because the Prime Minister is indicating um, and the Treasurer are indicating that they believe this is a significant increase and it suggests that they have no interest in doing anything else. And also just um, to let folks know that the youth allowance payment is even lower. So youth allowance recipients are living on $281 a week. Uh, so that will take them up to $300 a week. So they will still be on less than half the poverty line. So that's how severe um, the kind of gap between payments and the poverty line is. And I also just want to emphasise that the poverty line itself we know is inadequate, um, but at the moment it's the best measure we have and that's why we use it. So it's very, um, it's very concerning and it's really galling to hear politicians talk about how successful economic managers they are when people are going to be trying to stretch that extra $20 so incredibly far. Mm. I know you said you weren't surprised with the outcome, but at some point were you hoping for more from a Labor government who went to the election saying no, no one would be left behind? Um, I paid obviously very, very close attention to everything that Albanese and other Labor MPs were saying in the lead up to the election. And they were actually quite clear and specific when asked about the fact that they were going to look at the job seeker rate and they were speaking in ways that indicated they weren't interested in doing anything about it. So I think um, that language no one left behind was very cynical and cruel and manipulative, as it was for Albanese to constantly talk about his own background from mm. coming from a low income. And what that has meant is that people who are less cynical than me, <laughs> less pessimistic than me, I suppose, um, are feeling feeling um left behind I've had not not just left yes left behind but you know the thing that's really um upsetting is to hear people say that they feel stupid for having believed uh mm. the prime minister would help them and that's just so unfair because people are you know for their own um you know, not, not expecting people to be as evil as this. People now feel that they are the ones who've been stupid when, in fact, it's just cruelty um, from the government. It's, it's very, um, yeah, it's very... Damaging. It's hitting people on a lot of levels. It's really damaging. It's really damaging. So um, it's, it's not that I had higher expectations, but a lot of people did. Mm. Um, and frankly, I was, I was thinking that they would 
probably do a very small increase, but I also thought there was a possibility they would do no increase. Materially, this change is, is not going to make much difference, but I'm, I think that it is community pressure that led them to do this small increase because they are scrambling to try and find ways to convince the public that they have done something mm. without actually doing much. And I think that shows that people have been really effective in making the government feel they do need to take action on these issues. Yeah, we'll talk about that a bit more later because that's a really interesting aspect of the campaign and, and the outcome. Um, but firstly, over 55s are being offered a higher rate of job seeker on account of the additional barriers they face. What was the government trying to do here and what's your response to this age-related approach? Well, I'll start with the response from older women because um, older women were quite um, outraged to be used as a political pawn by the Prime Minister when they have, you know, if you look across the media reporting, if you look in our online communities, people are saying, I know that young people have the same costs I do. And whatever your barriers to work are, whether it's age discrimination, and in fact, younger people also face age discrimination in the labour market, um, none of that makes a difference to how much it costs to live day to day. So whether you're unemployed for six months, 12 months, three years, 10 years, your day-to-day -day bills don't change. Yes, there are things that over time become more costly, but there are plenty of people in all age groups who are on these payments long-term. And it was an attempt to divide welfare recipients even further into this um, really sick concept of deserving and undeserving poor. Um, and I'm really heartened by the fact that, that was so strongly rejected by the people that the Prime Minister sought to use in this way. And again, I just want to emphasise it is a very small change. So at the moment, people between the age of 60 and 67 already get a slightly higher payment of about $40 a week, and they're just changing that age down to 55. So for folks over 55, they'll actually be getting an extra $60 a week. And as I said earlier, we're looking at people who are $250 a week below the poverty line. Um, it's slightly more meaningful, but it's certainly nowhere near enough. And the Treasurer says that the job seeker rate increase shouldn't be seen in isolation. He says that it should be seen uh, in the context of the other cost of living benefits he's offering, uh, the increase in rent assistance and also the energy relief package. Can you give us an idea of who's likely to receive these additional benefits and will it really change a lot for the people that uh, you're advocating on behalf of? Mm. So the rent assistance uh, increase, so again, like adequacy with all of these things is, is the issue. And these types of piecemeal things, again, are designed to make it seem like they're doing a lot. And when you unpick the figures, you go, hang on, <laughs> that's practically nothing. So, you know, if we're talking $500 over the course of a year, we're talking about $10 a week. Now, we currently get an energy supplement of about $7 a week. Um, so... It's, I don't know how many people out there are finding that $17 a week will cover their energy bills, but certainly I know most people that I talk to, and myself included, have experienced increases of 20 to 25% and multiple increases in recent um, years. Uh, so we've got the uh, rent assistance change. Rent assistance is a really problematic payment for a lot of reasons. Um, it locks. It, it's not accessible to people who don't have a current rental agreement, are paying rent at a certain level and are able to get all of the documentation that they need. And that can include things like having your housemates, if you're in a share house, 
signed documents. And so um, that means your housemates all have to be on the lease. It means you have to be comfortable disclosing the fact that your income is from Centrelink and requesting that your housemates sign things about the fact that you don't have sex with each other. Um, so the rent assistance payment doesn't actually go to a huge number of people. Um, so the rent assistance change will affect people on every payment. That's disability support pension, carers, age pension, youth allowance. Everyone who is eligible for rent assistance will get this increase. Um, however, again, for context, we're talking about 37% of people on JobSeeker will get it. It's a very small proportion of the total number of people who get payments. And we're, again, talking about 15%. Now, if you are currently in a share house, the maximum rent assistance you get is $50 a week. So it's really only going to be going up to sort of less than 60 still. Um, for people who are living alone, it's $150 a week. So they're going to be looking at it maybe going up to about 170 uh, sorry, um, it's 75 a week. Uh, and we're looking at, obviously, it's going up to maybe sort of 85. Uh, it's not a lot of money. And of course, uh, if you're not renting, if you don't have a home, which is a situation so many people are in, um, it's not going to help you there. That's right. And it also doesn't help people who can't get into a rental because of the low rate of payments. So mm. we have rent, the, the way that this payment is structured and the fact that it divides out people who already have a, a lease and people who don't means that people who can't afford to get into a rental are being trapped in unsafe homes. Mm. Um, it's a particular problem for young people and especially young queer folks who are stuck maybe in unsafe households but can't afford to get out. Now, that's not the only group, um, but we're... Uh, we're um, we're finding that there's lots of different ways and reasons that people can't get into a rental because of the level of this payment and the fact that the base rate is not high enough. So homeless folks are excluded. People who are owner-occupiers are excluded. So that means we've got folks who've been relying on JobSeeker long-term because of disabilities, because of other forms of discrimination, and their houses are falling apart around them and they cannot afford to do repairs. They're struggling to afford to pay their rates. Um, if you're living on JobSeeker and you have a home, a lot of people think that puts you in a really privileged position, and to some extent it does. But because payments are so low, even the low housing costs that you might have if you're an owner-occupier with no mortgage are still really hard to cover. And, of course, some people are trying to cover small mortgages, and that means that what we're finding is people end up, because they cannot get this payment and because base rates are not high enough, they end up having to sell their home. Now, that's very convenient for the government because then they may have a bit of equity that converts into cash that makes them ineligible for JobSeeker for a while. And then eventually, once all of their savings have gone, then they find themselves uh, eligible for rent assistance, of course. But the government now has, uh, you know, kicked someone out of their home and caused all this disruption in their life only to end up paying them rent assistance. So it is a terrible payment for lots and lots of reasons. In your conversation yesterday with the ABC, you said you would have liked to have seen a triage approach to alleviating poverty. Can you tell us what you mean by that? So this is where I was talking earlier about the Henderson Poverty Line, and it's, it's an inadequate measure of poverty. We know this because in 2020, JobSeeker was at the Henderson Poverty Line, and ACOS found that a third of people were still regularly skipping meals. And we had 40% of people skipping medication and healthcare. So it's not a good, it's not a perfect measure of poverty. It is the least bad one that we have. So we're saying 
let's immediately get everyone to this level that will be a substantial increase, will provide people with some level of financial stability and security, and then have the calling on the government to work with unemployed advocates and all welfare recipients to gain a much more sophisticated understanding of poverty and develop a responsive poverty measure, which, you know, if the Treasurer then wants to do things like really significantly invest in public housing and reduced housing costs, or really significantly invest in Medicare so that we're not actually paying fees when we go to see healthcare professionals, then that would actually, the poverty line would respond to those sorts of changes. Um, so we want something that is much more adaptable, much more um, you know, able to recognise different living costs. For example, disabled people have higher living costs, around 50% higher on average, and we want more work to be done around that to understand the cost of living with disability. So there's all these different things that we should understand that the government's not interested in doing, and if we could do that work, we would then be able to say, okay, we've got this understanding of poverty, we can see what the poverty line really is in 21st century Australia, and then we have this independent commission whose job is to keep that poverty line fit for purpose, and to set payment rates based on the poverty line with a mandate of ensuring that no one who lives in this country is living in poverty. And the uh, Interim Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee that the government set up also calls for an indexation uh, commission or body that will provide an objective picture of what poverty looks like. Uh, What do you think is the likelihood of this gaining traction with the government? I mean, I don't think it's a very good proposal. Um, I think that that might be one of the reasons the government could take it up because they're very happy to have all sorts of advisory bodies that don't require them to actually do anything, as we've seen with what I call the exclusion committee. Um, I also think that use of the word objective is really problematic, and that's because uh, they, the, the types of people involved in these things have no regard for the expertise of people who actually live on the payments, and they have shown time and again they are uninterested in the hearing about solutions and proposals from people who have to interact with the social security system and other systems that keep us in poverty every single day. So it's not an inclusive proposal. It's not going to deliver sophisticated outcomes for that reason. And it'll be easy for the government to ignore it. So I think, you know, there's a 50-50 chance the government will take it up. But that's really because of the fact that it's it's probably not very going to be very effective or useful in my view. Okay. Well, coming to the campaign that you've you've run uh, leading up to the budget, you spoke about community power and the pressure that's placed on the government. Um, would you like to talk more about that and how it influenced the outcome? You, you said that you know you you thought there might have been no increase to job seeker. Uh, do you think what the government's delivered is a response to this broader feeling in the community that this needs to be addressed? Yes, and obviously to acknowledge that um, it's been a very broad-based campaign running for a very long time. Um, Many organisations have made huge contributions. Um, The Australian Unemployed Workers Union, the Anti-Poverty Network, of course there's the big, um, you know, NGOs who have different interests and reasons for um, being involved, but they have done uh, effective work in bringing public attention to the issue. And... I think what has happened here is that the government, you know, I always say evidence and compassion will not change minds of people in power. If they did, we would not be in this situation because they have been seeing the same evidence for decades now. 
what will cause change is if they feel they cannot get away with not doing something. If, if we convince politicians that it is politically untenable because we make it politically untenable to do nothing, then they, we are forcing their hands. Now, I think this is the first um, sign that that is a strategy that we can pursue and succeed with because I really believe that they were considering doing nothing. I believe that some of those early uh, leaks or, you know, um, sort of floating proposals mm. around was designed to see what will the public tolerate in terms of how and who we can exclude. Um, and it's clear that that didn't convince people that the community is looking around and going, I'm being left behind. People I know are being left behind. People in my family are being left behind. And they've really set themselves a very black and white benchmark with that slogan. And there's no wiggle room in it. People can see the government is failing on its commitment. And so I have seen already this morning and in the weeks, recent weeks, people who have said, I was handing out for the Labor Party. I was a member of the Labor Party. I voted for the Labor Party. And I will not, again, I'm, I'm moving to the Greens. I'm moving to independence because of this specific issue. And the government believes this isn't a vote changer. And it is true that polls have shown that it's not a vote changer. But now we are seeing people who have been really committed to the Labor Party, believed that it was really about um, doing the best uh, they could for people um, who are the most in need and have failed by that measure. So they're really turning off their own base and I think that's really significant and mm. that's the kind of thing we need to push in the coming months and years to make it impossible for them to succeed politically without taking action. Mm. And just finally, because we need to wrap up, uh, the media seem to be more interested in presenting poverty as a real issue this year. Would you like to talk about the media's role in giving the issue airtime in the budget lead up and what might have been different to other years? I think that it has been a shift. It's, it's that sustained work done over many years to convince the media that, that this is an issue that needs attention. And that work has come to fruition in this budget, not just because of the activists and advocates who've pushed it for so long, but also because I think the, the media believes that it is uh, like right to interrogate the Labor Party more on these issues. Everyone feels that there is no or very low expectations from the coalition, but the media know that the community expect more from Labor on this, and I think that made it... Um, something that was more relevant for media. Um, and I would also say, though, that it's been incredibly disappointing to see uh, across the board, basically, media calling this a win. Mm. You know, they love to divide us into winners and losers and they've put welfare recipients in the winners column this year. And I think that's really appalling and it does show how far we still have to go for the media to become literate in this policy area and understand what it really means in people's lives. And also that nuancing of, you know, different people's lives rather than putting everyone in one basket. Um, That's right. Yeah. It'd be interesting um, to see how the media follows uh, post-budget. You know, you've already said they're calling it a win for uh, welfare recipients, but they're also, you know, caught by the, the historic uh, surplus that the government's delivered. And, yeah, so we're already seeing sort of a shift away from the real impact of these decisions on, on people that are already marginalised and vulnerable. Uh, yeah, so we'll have to watch that space. Yes. yes, they are literally choosing to sacrifice the lives of people on the lowest incomes for the sake of a budget surplus. And it's, 
it's really disgusting. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, really appreciate you coming onto the show after you know a huge campaign and a really big day yesterday and last night. And we'll definitely uh, keep talking about this issue here on 3CR. Great. Thanks so much, Claudia. And that was Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre responding to the impact of the government budget on those living in poverty. That was some uh, very fascinating stuff, Claudia. Um, very interesting. Um, I think there's going to be some question marks regarding uh, to what's going to happen in the, in the coming months ahead. If people are saying they don't want to vote Labor anymore um, on what their policies are, it, it is making it interesting, doesn't it? Yeah, I think Labor's really um, gone with this mantra of, uh, you know, no one left behind was the first one, and then the care economy. And, yeah... Something for everyone. It's sort of. Yeah. <laughs> I think that uh, I think Kristen um, spoke about you know the idea of uh, people believing those words, and I think that that might have been something that occurred earlier on. But I think people will very quickly now the proofs in the pudding with what they've delivered. Uh, people will start questioning these uh, mantras, and you know whether. The substance is really there behind what the the government is, you know, describing. Yes, definitely, definitely. So now we are going, we, there was a bit of a chat about public housing in that mm -hmm, conversation yes. you had. Um, and we're now going to go into uh, my conversation with Fiona York. She's the host of Raise the Roof, which is on uh, every Wednesday afternoon from 5.30pm uh, uh, to 6pm. And she discusses everything in public housing. And the issue is regarding the Barack Beacon housing estate in Port Melbourne, which has been an issue in the last couple of months and has been driven by uh, Dr. Joe Toscano and his crew there at uh, Everybody's Public Housing, if I'm correct at the title. And they and I speak to Fiona in, in regards to the issue and what's going on. And we also hear about the current situation, what is happening. Now, I am joined by Fiona York, host of 3CR show Raise the Roof. Uh, here to discuss the Barack Beacon housing estate in Port Melbourne. Firstly, Fiona, how are you uh, this fine Wednesday? I'm very well, thanks, Patrick. So, Fiona, I was hearing your interview with Margaret in February um, of this year, who is unfortunately having to uh, move out of her estate that she's been living over there for a decade. Firstly, give me an idea of the situation those residents are facing and yes. um, what's your take of the situation? Yeah, so Barack Beacon is a public housing estate down on the water in Melbourne, in Port Melbourne, and it was earmarked for redevelopment under the big housing bills by the state government. So um, at the moment, the state government is redeveloping lots of public housing estates, um, but Barack Beacon wasn't one of them originally. There was originally around 12 or 13 estates across um other areas like Northcote, people would have probably heard about the Walker Street Estate um, and, and other places. But this one wasn't earmarked for that and residents received a letter just around Christmas time to tell them that they would be getting relocated so the site could be redeveloped. Obviously, it's had a really big impact on residents like Margaret who have been living there for a very long time. And from what we understand, from what our members who live there are telling us, um, is that there's been a lot of confusion um, 
around where people will be going and a lot of, um, I guess, offers made and then taken back and things like that. So the, the state government has a couple of workers down there that are basically trying to find other places for the residents to live, but it's been quite disruptive for them. And I guess there's questions about whether or not this approach is worth, worth it at all, really. Um, and that's that's what we're thinking, is, is really, is this good use of government funding to be renting in very expensive private rental markets to putting tenants in, in, in as they demolish their homes? Yes, yes. Um, Fiona, I was um, actually down at uh, Barack Beacon on Sunday in the cold weather, yep. having a bit of a walk around and given the proximity to the beach and also just walking around the area, the, the architecture itself there is quite modern and quite hip and new. It's not what was the original design of the area, if you know what I mean. Um, it, yeah. it feels it feels to me like there's a lot of people driving around with Porsches and Ferraris um, than the, the general public who are looking to live and enjoy their own life. Yeah, I think it's a pretty stark thing when you do go down there and have a look because all around there is, like you say, these very expensive luxury apartments on the forefront of the beach overlooking the bay. And then Barack Beacon is basically the last bastion of low-cost housing in the area. Um, and I guess is this part of a bigger push of gentrification where poor people and people on low incomes are pushed out of these places into into further and further out of the city and in, into other housing. Yeah. It's not as affordable, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very true, very true. And in terms of what we're seeing now, cost of living crisis, we're, we're seeing, you know, a high, you know, rental rental crisis across Melbourne and Victoria, and this is just going to probably bastigate it for those residents involved. In terms of in terms of the community consultation and speaking and hearing your chat with Margaret, According to Homes Victoria, and I was looking through the website with my research, it seemed to me that it was consultation of last year. Was that aware to Margaret, um, or was that kind of lost lost to residents, if you know what I mean? I think there has been consultation with residents, but it hasn't been about whether or not the project should happen. It's been more about where they're going to move. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think the focus... And this is the frustration, I guess, is that it's, it's done on a case-by-case basis with individual residents who are being offered alternative places to live. And there's no opportunity for the bigger picture to say, actually, is this worthwhile and do we want this to happen at all? So the focus of the consultations has been very much about trying to find other housing for the residents so that the project can proceed. Um, and I think the most disappointing thing about the Barack Beacon Estate is that it was when it was built in the 60s, it was actually held up as a really great example of fantastic public housing. Um, and now, and architecturally, it's really different too, um, the way that it's been designed. And there's been some architects look at it and say, hey, we can actually keep that housing, we can keep the residents in place, it can be modified so that it meets modern standards in terms of accessibility and environmental standards. And we can have infill, so we can put more houses in there. The residents were consulted about that, and that's the project they wanted to proceed with, but the government hasn't taken that approach. Um, they want to knock the whole lot over. Um, so I think there are alternatives that are more cost-effective, that the residents support, that are more environmentally friendly, um, and would be a better outcome, but it's just not even been entered into as a possibility. 
Yes, yes. So those residents now, you know, they're going to face an unknown probability of relocation, but also there's no real description of if they're going to be welcomed back to their homes that they um, originally lived in. They, well, they've guaranteed that they can move back. That yep. All of the public housing redevelopments do make that guarantee. The sort of housing that they move back into is unknown because um, it, has, they don't, it won't be the same as it was before, I guess. And the community does get displaced through that process, um, which is really sad. And also, it's never back into public housing. It's back into community housing, which is run by uh, not-for-profit organisations on behalf of the government. So... They won't be public housing residents, they'll be residents of whatever community housing provider is is given um, the contract, and it will be a mix of private housing as well. Yeah. Uh, why do you think this redevelopment has kind of been hidden from the public? Like, you know, we haven't seen a lot of mainstream media coverage on this. Why do you think that is the case? Um, I think there's been a little bit of media coverage, but I think generally speaking, we just hear the words repeated over and over again that Victoria is spending $5.3 billion on housing and let's not look too closely at the details. And it seems like it's actually going backwards in terms of the, the housing being built. And it's not just because there's no builders around, it's because they're knocking over these older housing estates and they're, at the moment, mainly holes in the ground. Um, so... Yeah, it's pretty frustrating because I think that we could be having a discussion as Victorians about what we want to see. Everybody wants more public housing. Everybody wants more community, you know, to have people on low incomes able to be securely housed. Let's have a discussion about this and, and what this looks like. And, yeah, it just doesn't seem to be... The detail of it doesn't seem to be covered effectively in the media, which is great why 3CR is here, to be able to talk about these issues in some detail. Yes, yes, it's always important discussing these com important community issues, especially something like this, which it seems to me, when I got told about it and heard about it through um, through my other uh, colleagues at 3CR, it feels concerning um, just to hear about it. And also you do feel for those residents because I, I was talking to someone just recently and I said to him, what would you do if you know, you've been told, oh, your place is going to be redeveloped but you don't know where you're going to go, um, you know, as your business, you know what I mean? So, and they said to me, well, that's, that's not a good thing, you know? So, um, I, it does feel, does feel like, you know, if you, if we can get some message out there to the community, they'll understand this in a, in a greater context. Yeah. And for us, as, as we're a service for older people, so people that are 50 years and older. And so for older people, it's, it's really hard to move out of the places that you know, that's where your doctors are, that's where the shops are, the public transport, the people, and it's a community that's lost then um, because because although they may try to keep people in the same area, it's just too expensive and and they, they can't afford to be putting residents in, in private rental in the same area because of the high cost of rental, which is the problem. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you have anything else to tell our listeners that should be aware with public housing and, this, and any further thing you want to add? I guess... The the biggest concern for us is that across the entire country there's a push away from government running public housing. It's it's no longer the priority of all levels of government, federal and every state. So what we're seeing is that government's divesting itself of the responsibility for public housing and they're giving it to community housing providers and also, in this case, private as well. And the reason that that's a problem is that it's not managed in the same way. They're letting it run, get run down um, in order to be able to justify this. And there's this perception that the private 
sector knows how to run things better, and it's actually not true. So residents themselves pay more rent in community housing. The complaints process isn't streamlined. The, the way you enter it isn't the same. And so we're actually losing public assets. Um, so we support that, the, and the Public Tenants Association says this as well, that there should be growth in both. And at the moment, there's only growth in community housing. Um, and it's a problem. And so we think there should be more public housing, that it should stay in government hands and that um, it's when it's well managed um, and well resourced in terms of maintenance and repairs and all of and tenancy management and complaints, then it's a good option, but those things aren't happening at the moment. Yeah. So, yeah, it's happening everywhere across the whole country. Yes, yes, it definitely is, Fiona. Well, thank you very much for joining um, 3CR Breakfast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Pat. And you are listening to 3CR, and that was Fiona York, host of 3CR show Raise the Roof. She was discussing the Barack Beacon housing estate in Port Melbourne, uh, which is a massive issue and will continue to be an issue. Um, with tomorrow as well, there's going to be a special vigil planned. Um, it'll be at 11.30am on the steps of Parliament House. Uh, this is by the Public Housing Everybody's Business. Uh, they will be having uh, Margaret Kelly, who uh, who had an interview with Fiona in early February, so make sure to check that out on the 3CR website. And uh, Margaret Kelly is the pensioner involved in this situation with another 249 residents uh, who are being evicted. Um, they were issued the evicted notice. Um, so that will be held at the par- steps of Parliament House tomorrow at 11.30am. Uh, so be there to get along to it. At midday, they're going to accompany Margaret and her supporters to the Minister of Housing's office at 15 Lonsdale Street, Melbourne, to request a meeting with the Honourable Colin Brooks, MP, uh, discuss a new strategy for public housing. So make sure you can get down there if you can and follow the crowd along. Uh, also, uh, we will be getting uh, more information on this situation uh, in the coming week. Um, we have sent off some questions off to the Honourable Minister, Brooks, and also uh, be following up the story from tomorrow's rally. So make sure to tune in next week. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged three and four can access 15 hours per week of free kinder. Kinder programs provide culturally safe places for children and families and are led by qualified teachers. Enroll for 2024. Speak with your preferred kinder service or local council today about how to register for a place. Koori Kids Shine at Kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash kinder. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne. Enjoy the splendour of Ripponley Estates Gardens at the Botanica Festival, featuring an open-air market, plant and garden book sale, as well as freshly baked scones with jam and cream. Join a garden tour, visit the mansion, or enjoy the various displays. Botanica is made possible by the city of Glen Ira. The Botanica Festival on Mother's Day, Sunday, May the 14th, between 10am and 3pm. For more information, go to ripponlee.com.au. Ripponlee Estate is owned and managed by the National Trust of Victoria, a 3CR supporter.
என் ராசாவின் மனசிலே இசை ஞானி இளையராஜாவின் இசை கொண்டாட்டம் celebrating the wondrous music of Maestro Ilya Raja on 3CR every Friday 8 to 9 p.m. Sarik 26th of May You're listening to 3CR Breakfast with Grace, Patrick and myself. And uh, it's been a big show today, mm. wrapping up, uh, well, unpacking, <laughs> unwrapping <laughs> the budget. Yes. And uh, that was a really important piece that we finished on uh, about the public housing, which sort of connects to everything we were talking about today in, in about poverty and security for, for people uh, and stability and all of those really important factors um, keeping people safe. So do you want to give us those details again, Patrick, for the rally tomorrow? Uh, because uh, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who have been following this and might want to get along. Yeah, so the um, as the details I just said just uh, before we went to a little break there, um, so the Margaret Kelly, um, the pensioner who's been evicted for 25 years at Barack Beacon Public Housing Estate, um, she'll be having a press conference um, that will be joined by the Public Housing Everybody Everybody's Business. Um, they are helping her and helping out the residents. So it will be at 11.30am at Parliament, Seps of Parliament House um, tomorrow. Uh, so make sure to get down there. And then at midday, they're accompanying Margaret and supporters to the Minister for Housing's office at 50 Lonsdale Street, Melbourne, to request a meeting with the Honourable Member. And another event uh, this week uh, on Saturday... The 13th, uh, Nakba, 75 years of apartheid. Uh, there's a rally at the State Library, 1pm, uh, to acknowledge this day of uh, catastrophe. Nakba is catastrophe, 75 years of apartheid. Uh, that's the 13th of May, this Saturday at 1pm. And that's all we've got time for this week, so we will... See you all next time. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.